Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah 9. Depending on which translation of the Bible you have, when I start in Isaiah 9.1 in my ESV, you may need to look back to Isaiah 8.23. Nevertheless, we're starting with, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramp, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of, his, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray over this text. Father, we give you thanks that you are zealous for us. We give you thanks that you are zealous for your glory You're zealous for the exaltation of your son and your people. And you are zealous for us. Emmanuel, God with us, remains true of us. Would you walk us through this text, we pray. Sanctify us miraculously by the power of your spirit. We entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you, uh, Andrew Peterson, fans out there, and I know I'm talking to quite a few of you, and if you're not, you should be, his newest album is called The Burning Edge of Dawn. Here are the first words that you'll hear on the album when you buy it for your family this Christmas. (laughs) First song on the album is called The Dark before the dawn. It says, I've been waiting for the sun to come blazing up out of the night like a bullet from a gun till every shadow is scattered, every dragon's on the run. Oh, I believe, I believe that the light is going to come and this is the dark, this is the dark before the dawn. Those of you that have tried to convince to buy the album have heard me comment that outside of the Bible, I can think of no other current, I should probably say, influence in my life that brings me to the brink or the 
edge of eternity like this album. This re- it really is the perfect title for the album. And I mean that in every good way with nothing dark or sad or morbid about it. This album brings me to the edge of dawn, full of hope, full of faith, feeling like I am on the top of Cadillac Mountain again out in Maine, being among the first on the eastern seashore to see the sunrise, and Matt even found a picture of it and threw it in out there. Any of you who've seen it, you know that you see it before you see it, right? The first thing you see isn't the sun. It's the light of the sun preceding its appearance that fills you with the anticipation of the breaking of the dawn. When the sun finally breaches the horizon, it does make the 4 a.m. drive up the foggy and dark and cold and windy Cadillac Mountain absolutely worth it. And what I'm saying is that outside of Scripture, the burning edge of dawn gives me a Cadillac Mountain experience spiritually like nothing else. And one of the reasons for this, I think, is because the album doesn't overlook or neglect the darkness of the present. The sunrise on Cadillac Mountain wouldn't be what it is if it wasn't dark and cold and uncomfortable and if it didn't require sacrifice of sleep and warmth and comfort to get up there to see it. So it wouldn't be what it is if there were a hotel on top of the mountain where you could just look out your third or fourth story window from the warmth of your room and see it. Or if there were a store with lights and a gift shop and free coffee and hot chocolate to ease the discomfort of the experience. And and what strikes me about the, the burning edge of dawn is the dawn is what it is in all of its brilliance and glory in the album because the dark before the dawn is what it is as well in all of its weight and its pain and its sorrow. So there is not only in the album the the hope-filled dark before the dawn that opens the album, but appropriately, right there in the middle of the album, there's a song called The Rain Keeps Falling. And the title of the song speaks for itself. It powerfully captures the struggle of this life so well. And I opened this way this morning because I think that what Andrew Peterson does in The Burning Edge of Dawn reflects in a very powerful way what Isaiah is doing in this section of his prophecy. It's prevailing darkness penetrated by the brilliant light of God's word which precedes the new dawn. So let's talk about this prevailing darkness. Let me just throw out some of the terms that stand out to us in this text that just, I guess, prove my point or support the argument. Here are a couple of them. Distress, hunger, darkness, gloom of anguish, thick darkness, gloom again, then glory and light and joy and harvest and gladness. So we we know, we know, looking back on this text, that the hope of the nation and the hope of the world was wrapped up in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was not only born, but he was born to live and to die 
in our place and for our sins, only to rise again from the dead and triumph over death, and then to ascend to the heavens where he's seated at his Father's right hand as King of all heavens and all earth. So looking back, we know the light of the world of which this passage prophesies has come and that the darkness has been breached and not just breached but overcome in Jesus' death. The accomplishments of his death sealed in his triumphant resurrection from the dead. The new and eternal covenant sealed with his blood has been inaugurated and its mediator has been enthroned as our king. And we as... Our study recently in Galatians has told us, and as Colossians 1 further tells us, we have been delivered by God's grace from this present darkness and have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son so that our experience now is one in every way at the burning edge of a brand new dawn. We live as citizens of an unseen kingdom of light and truth and grace ruled by a king that we have not seen other than in the pages of scripture and through the eyes of faith that have been given to us by the spirit in regeneration. But we also live on the burning edge of the dawn of his second coming and with him the appearing of his kingdom. So we can be full of hope and faith and joy this Christmas season, despite all the darkness and suffering and pain that weighs so heavy in life in the present, because the light that precedes Jesus' second coming remains on the horizon. And don't don't miss the intentional language of that. Notice I didn't say the light that precedes his coming has suddenly appeared on the horizon as if some current event has caused the light to appear. I'm saying the light remains on the horizon, much like the light of Jesus' first coming was already on the horizon for the original hearers of Isaiah's prophecy. And our calling, much like theirs, is to keep believing. So we're in this text this morning to be called once again to keep believing not to ignore this present darkness or even to avoid it as if that were even possible, but to refuse by God's grace to submit to it or to be overcome by it or to have our joy overthrown by sorrow or our hope replaced with skepticism or cynicism or our faith overcome in unbelief. Of course, We know what verses we're ultimately going after in this text. That's why we're in this text at this time of year instead of randomly in like August. It's verses 6 and 7, although it would be no problem whatsoever to be in this text in August. But it is verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The light of these verses that anticipate the breaking of the dawn of Jesus' birth came to God's people in the midst of heavy, thick, painful darkness. And and you may remember some of the darkness through sermons that you've most likely heard at other times this time of year from a passage just two chapters earlier. 
Isaiah 7.14. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. If you remember correctly, that prophecy was spoken to Judah's king Ahaz under the threat of an invasion by Syria and Israel. And Isaiah 7 verse 2 says that when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. If you remember correctly, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings. Three of those kings were good kings. One of those kings was a bad king. Of the four kings under whose reigns Isaiah prophesied, Ahaz is remembered as the only wicked king among them. In 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 3, even says, Ahaz even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And yet God graciously remains faithful to his covenant with his people and he sends them prophets in the midst of this darkness who continue to remind his people of God's promises and of his warnings and to call them to keep trusting God and keep believing God's word. Particularly, in reference to King Ahaz, God sends Isaiah to him to talk him off the ledge, so to speak of his fear and his unbelief that was about to be expressed in Ahaz pledging allegiance to the king of Assyria. And I want you to just listen afresh to the words the messengers of Ahaz relayed on his behalf to the king of Assyria. This is 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, King of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. I'll I'll tell you, I, I read that afresh this past week and it struck me. If you remove the names and the context, those words are a legitimate prayer that a believer would pray to God. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me. And this is the king saying those words to the king of Assyria when God has called the nation that he's king over by both of those titles, both servant and son. Not only that, but Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. It's called here a present, but it really is a bribe. On a spiritual level, it is the unbelieving equivalent to making an offering in faith to the Lord. So what Ahaz should have been doing was crying out in faith to the Lord, not the king of Assyria. Acknowledging before God what he was pledging to the king of Assyria, that he and the nation of Judah were God's servants and God's covenant children. 
and then offering up an offering to him according to the law, rather than bribing a pagan king with silver and gold from the temple and treasures from the king's house. We all know that Ahaz refused the Lord's command to ask a sign, which is the context in which Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7 of the virgin birth came. But remember, the child prophesied was meant to be a sign for King Ahaz and for the people of his day. If the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 isn't enough to see this, Isaiah even says it more plainly again in chapter 8 and verse 18. Despite Ahaz's refusal to trust God and to believe his word, Isaiah affirms, beginning in Isaiah 8 and verse 17, he says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And Isaiah says this about him and his own children. He says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So King Ahaz was called to submit to a greater king, the Lord, who dwells on and by implication reigns on Mount Zion and Ahaz refused. And he chose to submit himself and God's people to an earthly king instead. And I'm not in any way saying Isaiah 7.14 is not fulfilled in Jesus. I affirm in every possible way it ultimately was. As a matter of fact, the, the text that we will be in next week in Matthew 1 makes this undeniable. But I am saying, like many prophecies, most prophecies... There is a near and there is a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is the light before the breaking of the dawn of the far. And the near is meant to keep us hoping in and anticipating with joy the far. Despite this present darkness. And the significance of the near fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 for Ahaz and for God's people under his reign is that God said two verses after the prophecy of his birth, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Which is not only a guarantee that God will do it, and a further reason why Ahaz should trust God, because God is sovereign and he's faithful to his people. And his purposes will be fulfilled. But he also warns King Ahaz here that the Lord whom he refuses to trust, according to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 17, will bring upon you and upon your people. So Ahaz and Judah. And upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So who is God going to bring to judge Judah for her rebellion against him? Interestingly, he will bring the same nation that he would bring to make desolate the land of the two nations, causing Ahaz and all of Judah to shake as trees of the forest shake in the wind. The end of verse 17 affirms the king of Assyria. Assyria. 
which if if you've gotten lost in the detail, it's the same nation Ahaz ran to and submitted himself to and used words that a believing Israelite would have prayed to God and even offered the equivalent sacrifices to the king of Assyria as a bride. What a contrasting picture is painted between the king of Assyria, whom Ahaz entrusted himself to, who would in the end turn and betray him and devastate his nation. What a contrast between him and the Lord here, who is faithful to his covenant and who is extending mercy to his rebellious people by sending his prophets to them and giving signs to them to remind them of his faithfulness and his promises. Suppose similar things could be said of the objects of our trust today, couldn't they? Create a short, obvious list. People, health, wealth. Those are probably the three obvious ones. Perhaps one that's starting to emerge to the forefront for us in our context is safety and security. Something I've enjoyed and probably assumed my entire life. Despite a handful of freaks always out there scattered around. But if, if, if you're remotely responsible, you can probably, up until now, avoid most of that. But it, it feels like we've approached the day when responsibility doesn't even protect you. And it's harder and harder to identify who the freaks are. So trust in national security or presumption of safety is out the window, which is somewhat disheartening. But it's also a good reminder as well that we should have never been leaning so hard on that anyway. God is reminding his people, and he's doing it once again to us through the text of his word, which is living and breathing still. That he and he alone is faithful and trustworthy. And that he and he alone holds history in the palm of his hand and within the confines of his purposes. Brothers and sisters, God is the one driving this train. Through this present darkness that's brought about by our rebellion against him and to the breaking of the dawn giving us signpost after signpost along the way to keep us from freaking out in our seats on the train along the journey. As if at any time God has abandoned his post as our faithful conductor. In our text, Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which is one of the few names that actually takes practice to be able to say. He's born. And he is the near fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Second Kings chapter 15 through chapter 17 describe not only the waging of war on Jerusalem from Syria and Israel, but Assyria's conquest as well. Through Damascus, through Samaria, putting an end to the threat against Ahaz and Judah like the king of Assyria promised, but then into Judah as well. Just as God forewarned. 
chapter 8 paints this dark picture so well. So, Mehershalal Hashbaz is born in chapter 8 and verse 3. And by chapter 8 and verse 6, three verses later, Israel and Syria are overthrown. Verse 6 is portraying Judah rejoicing in their defeat at the hand of the king of Assyria. And listen to what God says. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. In other words, refuse God and rejoice in the overthrow of Israel and Syria from Assyria. Therefore, verse 7, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. And I just, this chapter is full of amazing imagery, so don't. Blow through it when you read Isaiah chapter 8. Don't miss the powerful imagery. Judah refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently. Therefore, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many. So, again, who or what is he referring to? He states it plainly. The king of Assyria in all his glory And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overthrow, overflow, and pass on. And just listen to this particular imagery. Reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. He is portraying the darkness that is coming upon the land of Judah as a as a person, he's portraying Judah as a person who is up to his neck in the waters of a flood, treading water. We noted at the beginning some of the other terms later in, the, in chapter 8 that capture the dark and the, the broken situation into which Isaiah's words of light and dawn come to Judah. But the most, in, in my mind at least, the most picturesque and Threatening to me is a powerful, raging river flooding the land that the nation is, is, is pictured as this helpless person up to his neck treading water. And if you consider the imagery, it's not a person in a calm pool treading water for practice in the deep end. Just out of the reach of the shallow end with the ability in and of himself or herself to go back and forth at will. It's not the imagery. The powerful imagery here is a person straining to keep his neck above water in a raging flood, not knowing when to take a breath in or when to hold his breath, when getting it wrong at the wrong time could mean the end. And there is no shore. There is no shallow end. The rain keeps falling. And only the God who sent the storm of Assyria could cause the floodwaters to subside and cause the dawn to dispel the darkness. And in our text today, which which our text today really is chapter 7 through chapter 9, but in the the text that we chose specifically and the one that I read and the one on which we'll end today is, is in fact what God does. 
Don't lose the imagery of Judah as a person in the raging waters of a flood, taking in water, struggling for breath, straining to keep his head above the water. Don't miss the darkness and brokenness and fear and dread, including all the terms that we brought out at the beginning, distress and hunger and gloom and anguish and thick darkness. But don't miss the fact that by God's grace, Judah doesn't drown. When you're reading through this, it seems inevitable. The imagery leaves it inevitable. She can't tread water forever. And I really just switched from Judah as he to Judah as she. So whatever one I throw out at any given sentence, you know I'm talking about Judah. (laughs) But she she can't tread water forever. Eventually, she's going to get the sequence of breathe, hold your breath, breathe. Hold your breath wrong, and a surge of water will blindside her, or the current will catch her and drag her under and downstream, and it will be over. The river of Assyria here is too strong. The darkness is too thick. To bring it back to a spiritual level, her sins against God are too many. Her rebellion is too much. And yet, she doesn't go under. We're in a set of chapters in the book of Isaiah called the book of Emmanuel. It's chapter 7 through chapter 9. God with his people. It's all throughout here. Beginning with the prophecy of the son who would be born of a virgin. And the imagery of this text and the mercy upon Judah for her not drowning in this judgment. Recall the text 30 chapters later. In Isaiah's prophecy, it's it's a familiar one. It's Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That's Emmanuel. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Wow. Our text this morning was given in the midst of that thick darkness. To call Judah, even in the raging waters of that flood, under that distress, to believe in the promises of deliverance of their covenant-keeping God, in their distress and under their threats, to no longer look to earthly kings for hope and salvation, but to God and God alone, who would fulfill his promises to his people. And in fulfilling his promises to his people, God would cause the dawn to break and light to dispel the darkness. That's according to verse 2. He would turn desolation to multiplication. According to verse 3. Sorrow to joy. Also according to verse 3. God would bring a harvest out of devastation and turn sorrow into joy and gladness. And God would lift his people's burden 
and reverse their curse and triumph over their enemies. And he would bring all of that about how? All of that prepares us for the incredibility of verse 6. Through the birth of a child. The new dawn. The, the four, at the beginning of verse 6, four unto us. The four at the beginning of the verse is extremely important because it lets us know that all of the reversal that God promises his people there, the dawn that he says is coming for his people is grounded in, where it comes through the birth of this child. And you will search in vain, in vain, to find something contributory that Judah did to earn what God promises or fulfills here. It is all of grace and it highlights the faithfulness of God to his many promises of deliverance through a son of Eve and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Judah and of David that preceded it. It's all brought forward here into this child who would not only be born of a virgin, according to chapter 7 and verse 14, but who would rule and who would reign and who would be given titles of divinity that fit him and fit him alone. So while God's promises were meant to remind his people that he remained with them and was faithful to them, this promised child is in fact Emmanuel. God with us. He is our wonderful counselor. And this meant in its context to be a contrast to the kings of earth, Ahaz in particular, who betray and who swear allegiance to earthly kings and give bribes and take bribes and lead people astray by selfish counsel. He is the mighty God who triumphs over his enemies. The imagery invoked here is whether by 300 taking on 135,000 Midianites, says here as in the day of Midian, or Moses and his staff dividing the waters of the sea, both referenced here as previous acts of God's deliverance for his people. So whether it's by 300 on 135,000, whether it's by Moses and his staff at the waters of the Red Sea, or whether it's most remarkably by his son, this child, who would bear the sins of his people and die in their place on the cross of Calvary and then triumph over death in his resurrection. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father of his people. So get this, he, he, he triumphs as the mighty God ferociously over his enemies on the one hand and he cares tenderly for his people on the other. And he is the Prince of Peace, which is fleshed out in verse 7. As he is seated on David's throne, bringing about the peace that was forfeited in the garden and promised to be returned ever since. Earthly kings may have enjoyed or may still enjoy periods of this kind of peace. 
with the rule of this child, this Davidic king will never end. Peace and justice and righteousness will prevail forever, which is true. Shalom, peace. A righteous king ruling justly over a righteous people who submit joyfully to his rule. And, and of course, we, we need no reminder that the righteousness of the citizens of his kingdom was not earned, nor is it inherent in them, but imputed or pronounced or declared over them by the king himself, who is also the judge. And not just the king and the judge, but the mediator who pleads their case on their behalf and bears the wounds in himself that their debt was paid. Brothers and sisters, our, our time is up this morning and, and so much more could be said. The beauty of a local church is that we'll have a lifetime of Decembers to come back and say more, maybe even in August someday. But, but notice where the passage ends. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is zealous for us. God's zeal for his own glory and the redemption of Christ has caused the dawn to break over us and we're called afresh to look to him in faith in what he's done and to remain full of hope and full of joy and full of faith in this present darkness knowing that just as the dawn broke upon his people at Jesus' first coming in the manger of Bethlehem the light remains on the horizon of his second coming as well. So you may feel the weight of darkness, the burden of sorrow, the struggle of sin, the breath of the enemy, the strain to keep your head above water in the floodwaters of this life. But don't lose hope. God remains zealous for you. Emmanuel remains true of us. God is with us. And may the dawn of his coming break. Back to Andrew Peterson. Burning Edge of Dawn. Latest album. First song. Breaking of the Dawn. We open with the first words. We close with the last. He says, I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn. And I could see the fields of glory. I could hear the sower's song. I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn, and all that rain had washed me clean. All the sorrow was gone. I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn, and I could finally believe the king had loved me all along. I had a dream that I was waking at the burning edge of dawn, and I saw the sower in a silver mist, and he was calling me home. And to that we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, as, as your people, we are brought back to the confession this morning. 
We believe, Lord, that you remain with us. Absolutely faithful to us. Faithful to us because you're faithful to yourself. You will fulfill, you'll complete the work that you've begun in us in Christ. Because you receive the glory that you planned from the foundation of the world for yourself through it. And so, Lord, in this present darkness, would you sustain us? May we not grow weary. May we submit ourselves to the many, many calls of your word and the prompting of your Holy Spirit who indwells us to keep believing, to keep looking out to the light that's on the horizon knowing that the sun is going to rise. Even so, come. We pray in Jesus' name.